This is Bill Osmolsky with the McTyver Institute. Welcome to the McTyver Newsmakers podcast. We're joined today by Grover Norquist from Americans for Tax Reform. Grover, thank you very much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you. Now, now, Grover, you're going around the country with a message to younger conservatives that things really aren't so bad these days. What, um, what makes you so upbeat about the situation in Washington? And tell us what bad looks like from your experience. Oh, absolutely. If you look at American history from 1932, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected, until 1994, when the Republicans, 97% of them signed the pledge not to raise taxes, and they won the House and the Senate, um, that was a 62-year period. The Republicans controlled the Senate, Congress. They controlled Congress for four of 62 years, from you know, the New Deal to World War II to Vietnam, uh, through the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and we didn't see the Republicans ever have the House and the Senate, apart from two times, in 62 years. So there really was one party rule in the United States for 62 years, effectively. And but in 1994, when Republicans said, we're going to be the party that will never raise your taxes, um, and they've kept it since then, they've kept that word, uh, from 1994 until the present, Republicans have controlled Congress, both houses, um, for 60% of the time, 60% of the time. Um, this is a dramatic change. Biden, as an older Democrat, finds that anti-democratic. He's used to democracy being Democrats run everything. Uh, the norm in Washington was Democrats ran everything. Um, and all of a sudden, the norm changes to where Republicans win more often than not. The democracy means that the Republicans have more control of Congress than Democrats do since 1994 through to the present. Um, and those younger people whose understanding of politics and Congress uh, begins after 1994, that's quite many people. They only remember a Republican Party that was competitive. The Republican Party did not used to be competitive at a national level in Congress, at period, for 62 years. Now it is. Controls Congress more than 60% of the time. That's pretty cool. Um, and it's, it is like stepping up an, an influence for the ideas of the modern Republican Party, for the party itself. Um, and that's why... Older Democrats are despondent and beside themselves. They've never seen an outrage like this where the, they have to talk to Democrats, Republicans to get something done. And younger Republicans don't understand why we haven't changed everything back to normal. They missed the 62 years buildup of big government and barnacles and, yeah, um, and uh, just buildup of larger government, larger government, larger government, year after year, that needs to now be undone. Yeah, so, uh, you know, just for added uh, perspective on this, I'm looking at a chart right now that tracks all this. And uh, since 1994, there have only been four years where Democrats controlled the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Yep. And yep. and it's a little, it is a little concerning at how much damage they're able to do with just those four years. That is true. And what we need to do as uh, supporters of smaller government 
is be prepared for the next time when there is a unified government with a Republican House Senate president with some things to move quickly on so that we don't have debates on the subject after they get elected or treat things like everything was new, but rather it's a continuation of the same fight for the last 70 years. And, you know, and that's one of the things that uh, struck, uh, sticks out in my mind from uh, when we were speaking earlier, uh, um, when the Democrats controlled Congress for those decades, Republican presidents came and went. And when there was a Republican president, they just kind of got everything ready so that once there was a Democrat president again, they could just take it off the shelf and ram it through. And they would say after Nixon or after Reagan, oh, there's this buildup of unmet needs. What they mean is the Democrats have been plotting to add new welfare programs, and now they're going to. You know, and then the other thing was um, you had mentioned that, you know, Repo- you know that, that whole pledge uh, that, uh, that Republicans took, that they would never raise taxes, that really drove their dominance uh, starting in the mid-'90s, um, that, you know, there has never been a— uh, an increase in taxes when Republicans controlled Congress in the past 30 years. Yeah, that makes a difference, and that convinces people it's worth voting for the Republicans. There is a dime's worth of difference, many dimes worth of difference between the two parties. That wasn't always true at the national level. Richard Nixon raised taxes. Uh, Bush, George W., George Herbert Walker Bush raised taxes. Uh, it wasn't until after those things were in the rearview mirror and all the Republicans said, we saw what happened to George Herbert Walker Bush. He lost the presidency because he raised taxes. We have learned never do that. You know, one of the and I, I laugh when you point that out because you know I realize yes, it's true. And the other thing I think of is why don't they? Why is it the Republican messaging beat us over the head with this fact? You know, it, it's you know you're you're really the, the first person I think I've ever heard say that. Republicans, you know, over the past three years in Congress, whenever they they control one of the at least one of the houses, there's never been a tax increase. I mean, that's a pretty good uh, campaign platform. Well, it is, and the only time that we actually lost the Congress since 1994 was when we stayed in Iraq too long in 1986. The economy was going great in 1986. There was just a backlash on what what looked like a. Uh, a completely unending uh, involvement and, uh, you know, what are we doing there and so on, and, and the, which Bush couldn't answer. You know, when are we coming home? What's the point? What are we doing? Um, and then the other one was the collapse of Fannie and Freddie, uh, two government-run programs which collapsed a bunch of banks, uh, and the Democrat solution when they came into power, because people thought that, you know, the Republicans hadn't handled them right, uh, the Republicans had wanted to sell those things off. That's what the Republican senators wanted to do. Unfortunately, uh, Bush didn't focus on that. They could have done that. They had the votes to do it, and you never would have had the crisis. Hmm. Yeah, and that you know, and that really comes down to it too. It's uh, Democrats and liberals seem to be so much better at messaging and spin and all all those communications tricks that really you know keep them on top of these situations way too often. Well, and they take advantage of any crisis. Remember, never let a good crisis go to waste. Every crisis is an excuse for the government. And that's why Republicans have to be the party that keeps an eye out. You know, like uh, the sailor goes up to the to the crow's nest and looks for problems, you know, scours the, the horizon for things that could go wrong. We need to be that serious about 
never, ever, ever letting some stupid government program collapse the way it did, um, in, you know, in, in the late uh, 2008, 2009, uh, because when they collapse, the establishment press and the Democrats explain, you know what we need? Big government. That'll solve this. <laughs> yeah. And that kind of like goes to another uh, another theme of yours uh, where, you know, the way you, the way you kind of uh, depict the difference between conservatives and liberals, Republicans and Democrats is uh, conservatives and Republicans are about private savings. Uh, you know, as much wealth that can be in private hands, the better. Uh, whereas for Democrats and liberals, the uh, government jobs and wealth are, I'm sorry, it was private savings make Republicans and conservatives. Jobs and welfare make Democrats and liberals. It, they do. And that's why the Republicans want everybody to save money and invest in the stock market, own a home if they choose. Um, and Democrats really want you to live on the edge and to be scared of the future, looking for Big Brother to take care of you, um, accepting welfare. That's their vision of what allows government control over people's lives. Yeah, and, I, and, and they'd say, and, and then we promise to help you. <laughs> yeah, and it's it just such a stark difference. I mean, just, I mean, you know, just those two main themes that, you know, we've been talking about. You know, Republicans are the party that will never raise your taxes in Washington. And then private savings make Republicans and government jobs and welfare make Democrats. I mean, those are, those are two slogans that, you know, every conservative should really be standing on. And I mean, it should be on T-shirts and bumper stickers. <laughs> Well, and the Democrats, I'm not sure, would disagree. I mean, they may not like the way it sounds, but they understand that they are the party that wants more people dependent on the state, uh, fewer people independent, um, capable of saving enough to control their own future and their own retirement. Uh, And that's just, they literally make decisions that way. They like energy shortages. They like higher energy costs because then they could maybe go give you some money and subsidize your use of energy, um, which doesn't make you better off. It just makes you more dependent. Yeah, and um, a more reliable voter. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Now, I know your other, your other favorite topic to talk about is uh, income taxes, especially the flat tax. Um, now, could you just, you know, Give, give me the elevator pitch on, on flat taxes, then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about some of the other things that you've been, you know, kind of uh, uh, sure. talking about lately. Yeah. Um, the great idea of a single rate tax, a flat tax, is, one, it treats everybody the same. It's like rule of law, okay? If you have a 10% tax, they take 10% of what a millionaire makes and 10% of what a middle-income person makes and 10% of what a lower-income person makes. Um it's even across the board. Now you had some point at which the first, you know, 10, 20, $30,000 is in tax. But after that, you tax everybody the same. That has a couple of things that really recommend it. First is it, it's the opposite of the politics of hate and envy and class warfare. Doesn't divide people, treats everybody the same. That's a really good idea. Um, two, um, a single rate tax is very difficult to raise because you have to look everybody in the state in the eye and say, I'm going to raise everybody's taxes. Then we're all looking. Uh, and there are very few projects worth everybody paying for. I mean, whenever they tell you something about, you know, people demand global warming, and then you ask how much would you be willing to pay, you know, per month for global, to stop global warming, say, oh, $50. Well, that's a fraction of what we're already paying um, to try and deal with 
global warming. Uh, so you really stop tax increases and make them very difficult if you have to have a single rate tax and everybody has to look and say, okay, you can raise taxes on all of us. It's very easy to say, I'm only going to raise taxes on the 2%. That's not me. That's not you. Go ahead, screw them. And the project will be free because I'm not in the top 3%. Uh, but of course, every time they say that, they turn around and then run an energy tax. You know, I really like the way that you kind of like describe the strategy of, you know, how how governments raise taxes and you know, and how, how you point out the advantage of everybody being in the same boat with a flat tax. And uh, what stands out is just how as soon as government can convince you, ah, just let, let us tax the rich a little bit more and everybody will be fine. Well, then when the government comes back and they want to tax everybody else a little bit more, there's really, you know, everybody's all divided. It's all divide and conquer. When everybody's in the same boat and government says, hey, we want to raise your taxes, well, then everybody's fighting, fighting on the same side. <laughs> Yes, if they say we're going to tax 10% of you now, 90% say not our fight. Then they come back and take another 10%. And over the course of 10 years, they tax everybody. But if they had to look everybody in the eye, they could have been stopped. Yeah, so flat tax uh, makes it very hard to raise taxes, and it makes it very easy to lower taxes. Absolutely. The other thing to keep in mind is the number of taxes. I think it's very important to have few taxes, you know, preferably one big one that everybody sees. Um, but hundreds of little fees, that's very difficult to fight against. Um, and if you've only got one tax, like the property tax, say New Hampshire, you don't want to add a sales tax or an income tax because as annoying as the high uh, property tax is, if you add a sales tax, as New Jersey did in 1965, add the sales tax to the property tax, thinking that would reduce the size of the property tax. It didn't. Just government got bigger and they spent it. Uh, and then they added, in addition to the sales tax and the property tax, they added um, an income tax. So now New Jersey has a high income tax, a high sales tax, a high property tax. The idea that if you had you know, uh, one tapeworm irritating your bowels, that if you swallowed a second one, it would force or convince the first uh, tapeworm to be more quiet, to eat less, to something, to become <laughs> smaller. No, you just have two tapeworms that are both growing. And uh, New Jersey had a property tax, then 10 years later, they added a sales tax, then 10 years later, they had income tax. Now they have all three. So they have three tapeworms, <laughs> which do more damage than one tapeworm or two tapeworms. So as few taxes as possible and as visible taxes as possible. Now, you know, Implementing a flat tax has been, you know, something that the McIver Institute has been promoting for years. And, um, you know, and it's it's one of those issues where, it, it you know, having a Repu Republicans in charge, having Democrats in charge, I mean, it, that doesn't seem to be like the X factor in making a flat tax happen or or, or, no, or eliminating your income tax. Um, I think some people would be surprised by some of this, you know, the fact that Illinois has a flat tax or that Washington state has no income tax. So... What are some of the factors that you need to really come together to uh, to get a state to adopt, you know, this uh, the flat tax or no income tax strategy? Sure. The first thing to do is look around and say, how are states with no income tax doing economically? Are they gaining jobs? Are they gaining investment? Do people move into their state, bring their incomes and their talents and 
uh, and the, the lives. Um, and the answer to that is people move to lower tax states, zero income tax states, away from high income tax states. They're telling you where they want to go. So if you're a state that doesn't isn't comfortable that your children are leaving their parents and moving to Tennessee because there's no income tax, that's a lively state. Um, you, but if, if you say, well, what if our state in Wisconsin or you know uh, Michigan, you know, what if we uh, went to a single rate tax and began to flatten our tax down to zero, um, then young people would stay in the state more often. Uh, they would invest more themselves in the state that other countries and people would invest more in your state if they knew that that was uh, the income tax was being the income tax was being phased out uh, and things like labor laws are, are getting easier to work with. That's a huge, huge step forward to say other than you know, rather than I'm going to cut taxes a little now to say I'm going to cut taxes a little now, but my goal is zero. Yeah, and um, you know, and like going back to just once we do have, once you do have a flat tax, they're they're hard to, you know, it's hard to get rid of. I mean, uh, Illinois, um, you know, Illinois was first of all, Illinois has a lower income has lower income taxes than Wisconsin, which I think a lot of people yes are always yes, surprised when yeah. they hear that. <laughs> but they, you know, they were trying to reintroduce the uh, progressive income tax there, and even with a state as deep blue as Illinois, that is not an easy thing to do. Absolutely, they were defeated. In uh, 2020, uh, when Biden was on the ballot, I think it lost by about six points. The idea of going back to a, towards a graduated income tax. Uh, it is good to see how unpopular moving from a flat rate tax. I'm sorry, from a yeah, from a flat rate tax to a graduated tax. How unpopular that is, and how popular it is to keep a single rate income tax rather than go to a broad uh, tax structure. So what kind of momentum do you see for the flat tax and no income tax uh, policy, you know, for the next several years? Like, where do you see things going? And, uh, um, you know, what, what can we, uh, you know, what can we look forward to here in Wisconsin, hopefully someday? Yeah, sure. Um, one, uh, we're looking at five states in the last two years who voted to go to a single rate tax, uh, Arizona, uh, Idaho, uh Iowa, uh, Mississippi, and Georgia. Um, that's pretty impressive. Uh, and uh, people are moving to a single rate tax, and then they're moving towards uh, zero. It's a very important step in the right direction. Excellent. Well, hey, Grover, thank you very much for joining us. I, I know you. I know you're really busy. You got to cram a bunch, a bunch of these talks into one day, and any one of those talks, you know could easily go for the entire day. <laughs> well, it's fun to be in Wisconsin. You guys have contributed so much to the nation. School choice, vouchers, uh, uh, reforming labor law so people don't uh, force you to pay a bunch of money and dues if you don't want to. Um, and and uh, so it's been very, very helpful. Uh, school choice, lower taxes, and uh, labor law reforms, all very good stuff. Um, Welfare reform. Welfare reform started in Wisconsin. Yeah, and we'll keep blazing that trail. We'll keep doing our best to blaze that trail. <laughs> Once again, I'm Bill Osmolsky with the McIver Institute. This is the McIver Newsmakers podcast, and we were joined today by Grover Norquist from Americans for Tax Reform. Uh, be sure to subscribe to us on 
SoundCloud, and check us out on our website, as always, mckiverinstitute.com.